Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Uh, today's TRL, uh, we're actually going to be talking about the prosperity gospel and a couple of other movements that have kind of derived in that same area. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I got a couple of texts. I know Kat said, well, are you going to wear your Gucci belt this morning? And you're, you know, and, and so, <laughs> of course, I don't own any of that. Um, so, uh, so I decided not to, but, um, but I try to put on my best fit. Amen. Uh, but <laughs> with all that being said, um, I'm excited for today's message. There's a lot in today's message. So I'm going to do my best to teach. Uh, if you're going to take notes, this is a great day to take notes. Um, and this is just a great time for us to learn and to grow together uh, in hopes that God would um, continue to help us um, know him more according to his word and to also discern and just be aware of um, things that are out there that would like to deceive us and maybe move us um, further from God rather than closer to him. And I know one thing when we committed to plant this church as pastors and leaders, we were determined to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, to preach his word unapologetically, amen, um, with grace and love, um, but to also not back down from topics and conversations um, that may cause some tension, amen? Um, because I believe that the word of God has something beautiful to say, um, and I believe that um, when we are afraid to talk about these things through the word, we, we, we almost give God um, a, a ba bad reputation, almost as if he's afraid of these subjects, and he's not. And, um, and his word does have something beautiful to say. And so um, my hope is that you would hear us as we continue to move along in this uh, sermon series. Um, Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 6. And I'm going to read verse 6 through 10. And then we will jump in. Scripture reads like this. I am astonished. This is Paul. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are running to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to, ready, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Did you guys catch that? Even if you receive a revelation via a dream, via a miraculous sighting of an angel, even if an angel comes, even if you experience uh, some sort of heavenly bliss, if it's not the gospel that we've given to you. Wow. Wow. He says, let him be accursed. He says, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For... Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's stop there. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul is addressing Christians who have been what he calls bewitched. You ever see bewitched, by the way? Uh, random thought. Uh, he addresses Christians who've been bewitched by false teachers preaching what he calls another gospel 
other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the same way, there are many Christians in churches being deceived today by men and women who claim to be ministers of Christ, but are preaching a different gospel. So my, my mission today is to look at what has been called the prosperity gospel and also uh, uh, movements like it, like the word of faith movement, and answer the three following questions. Number one, where did these movements come from? Did it come from God? Where, where did they come from? What are their origins? Number two, what, what's wrong with what they believe? What's wrong with that? Finally, number three, how can we learn to discern them for ourselves? How can we learn to discern them for ourselves? Now, I kind of included a disclaimer. You know, I've been praying, and even in this point now, I'm still praying in my spirit. Like, I'm going to mention some names. I may mention some names. There are going to be a few names and organizations that I know I will mention. But I also um, I want to be humble. I want to be gracious. Uh... I want you to hear my heart, and I want you to know that above all, I take my call to shepherd you in the gospel seriously. If any of this offends you, there's two things that can take place. Number one is you can have a private conversation with me. I'm open to dialoguing. Number two is if you feel like this isn't your church, then you can go find a place that believes what you believe, and I won't hold you back. But, but this is what I want to share, and I take I, above pleasing man, like Paul said, my first is to please the Lord. And here's the one thing that us pastors and leaders have to understand. There's no like cast order. We're not better than you or not. But there's a different responsibility that we carry in that when I stand before the Lord, he's not going to just judge me based on what I do with my life, but how I led my congregation. Because I'm preaching to you. I'm speaking to you from this pulpit. And there's a bit of power that I carry. And so my words are going to be judged. And so I got to make sure that I am doing this to what I feel is the best of not just my ability, but I feel what the scriptures have to say. Amen. Amen. So let me back out of that. I'm going to do my best, though, to do this graciously and humbly. Um, but I wanted to make sure I gave you a disclaimer. So as I pray for you, will you pray for me? Yes. 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 In fact, pray this whole TRL series because yes. it's not going to get any easier. Amen. Yes. You've seen some of that. Some of the lineups, you know that this is not going to get any easier. I am excited. I am eager. But nonetheless, we need your prayers. Pray for Roger. Pray for myself. Amen. So I'm going to pray for you. Will you just kind of pray for me as well? Let's do this. Heavenly Father, you know that it is my utmost desire to remove myself so that your son could be glorified, your gospel could be made clear. And so will you help me to communicate your words accurately, clearly, uh, without any offense. May the only thing be offensive here is the gospel. And that's between you and, and, and your people, Lord. But everything else, Lord, I pray that I would do it, Lord, uh, humbly, graciously, um, so that your word wouldn't come back void, but it would accomplish everything that it's been set out to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So where did this theology come from? Where, where did the prosperity gospel come from? And I might be going a little fast for you, but I by the end of this section, I feel like you'll have a good grasp on what I'm talking about. Where did this theology come from? Is it biblical? And how, how did it get into the church? How did it find its way into the church? So I'm going to give you a little bit of a, an origins story, right? No, no comic book, right? There's always a good origins story to really to any hero or to any movie or to any villain, right? And so I'm going to give you a bit of an origin story here for um, the prosperity teaching. Um, the prosperity teaching actually finds its roots 
um, in an 18th century philosophy known as New Thought. And again, you can take this back and, and look it up yourselves. Um, and within the New Thought philosophy, there were kind of like three core beliefs, right? Three kind of major values or beliefs that this philosophy carried. Number one was belief in oneself, right? Belief in the unlimited potential of the human, Right? Our, we have an unlimited potential of our minds. Right? So belief in oneself, belief in the unlimited potential or the unlimited power that you and I have. Number two was a belief in, are you ready, for the, of the primacy or the priori, priority of the metaphysical realm over the physical realm. So what do I mean by that? Yes, there is a physical realm. There's material things that we see, but there is a metaphysical realm, a, a, a realm that we don't see, and, and that's the primary realm, and so whatever is manifested in that realm will then be manifested in the physical realm, right? So three philosophies that emerge from this 18th century idea called new thought. Number one, belief in oneself. You have unlimited power. Number two, Belief in the priority of a metaphysical realm. And finally, number three, belief in positive thinking. Now, some of you might, oh, shoot. <laughs> um, because some of you, I would say, probably adhere to this. Um, and here's what they believe. This is the idea that you and I have the power to create our own realities. Right? Good or bad. Through visualization, right? And speaking them, declaring them into existence. Right, so we say positive things, positive things will come our way. If we say negative things, then negative things will come our way. Are you ready? So those are kind of like the three kind of core pieces to this idea of new thought. Now, here's what's really interesting. New thought largely concerned itself with physical healing. And, and here's why they largely considered it, uh, uh, con uh, concerned themselves with physical healing. Because during the 18th century, uh, medical practices were pretty archaic. Right? So like modern day medicine is so light years ahead of what they were doing in the 18th century. Like to go to a person who practiced medicine was to have something barbaric happen to you, right? I mean, you're talking about putting leeches on your body to drain out your blood, but you know what I mean? Like really barbaric stuff. And so new thought was this idea that, you know, the, we can't trust the, the medical industry. So we have to kind of create this way in which we can heal ourselves, right? So it actually kind of birthed from a, it always bursts from a good place to a degree. So new thought largely concerned itself with physical healing. And here's what they taught. They taught that all illness and all diseases were the consequences of wrong thinking wrong thinking right so so now that you have the framework it was this kind of metaphysical mysticism that started to influence some evangelists and begin to infiltrate the american church in the 19th century in fact, uh, you can look up E.W. Kenton uh, was an individual, he was an early evangelist who began to take this new thought philosophy, kind of marry it to the word and began to package it in, uh, in his time in his ministry with Christians. And as we know in the 19th century, as time went on, um, televangelism, right? Some of you know televangelists, right? Uh, some of you are a little afraid to say you know it because some of them are like your favorite people, right? But we, in the 80s, we see like the explosion of televangelists, right? And so we see men like Oral Roberts, who still has a university today. And we see men like Kenneth E. Hagin, right, who, who ultimately becomes the father of the Word of Faith movement, right? They begin to kind of normalize this stuff. 
and they begin to pave the way for others to come under them, uh, such as Kenneth Copeland. Anybody recently, anybody look at my meme yesterday? Um, anybody recently see his New Edition excerpt where New Edition comes up to, to ask him about his private jet and to ask him about why he purchases a private jet because one of the reasons why he gave it is because he doesn't want to fly commercial because he'll be around demons, right? And so they go back and forth. It's actually a really interesting thing. You can YouTube it on New Edition. Uh, it's just, it's really sad to be honest with you. Um, but nonetheless, men like uh, Kenneth Copeland, um, Frederick Price, and even Benny Hinn. Now, I know that's probably going to be something for a lot of you that you're going to be a little concerned about, uh, but I'm just doing what I feel like I have to do. Today, TBN uh, claims to be the largest Christian broadcasting network in the world, uh, but it has become... Um, a platform for many, not all, but for many of these men and women and others like them that spread this pseudo gospel message. And if you would like those names, I can give them to you privately. So what does the prosperity gospel actually teach? Okay, here it is. It claims freedom from sickness, poverty, and all suffering on the basis of Christ's death. It insists that it's God's will for all his children to be healthy and materially prosperous here and now. Are you with me? Now, if you listen closely, this teaching is really just new thought reimagined and wrapped into biblical language in Scripture. So then the next question is, what's, what's wrong with it, right? Like, what's wrong with wanting to prosper? Like, what's wrong, what's wrong with wanting to be healthy and to be healed? Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting those things, but the problem lies with how we define those things and then how we teach we can receive those things and then where we take those things when it comes to our doctrine in Scripture. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you what I think are four devastating errors um, these prosperity teachers and teachings regularly make now if you're taking notes here's here's the four now and then I'll go over them individually number one um, they exalt man number two they minimize God anytime you exalt yourself God will always be minimized right anytime you exalt your goodness the goodness of God will always be minimized they exalt man they minimize God, they belittle Christ, and they twist scripture. Again, today, I, this, is like, this could be like a four-parter, um, but today I'm, I'm going to do my best to give it to you quickly um, so that you at least have some understanding. And I'm sure as we go, I know this church and there are other churches that are around that, that we concentrate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I know that um, if you continue to, to grow, come to connects, you continue to learn, um, you will be able to discern um, these things. So let's, let's jump into number one. Uh, this false gospel exalts man. Let me explain how. Uh, listen to the words of, of Benny Hinn. He says this. The new creation is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. The new creation is just like God. May I say it like this? You are a little God. And there's actually a lot of people who actually follow in this suit. Kenneth Copeland, a lot of men under him. You are a little God. 
Now, I want you to see, look how this theology works itself out. Now, look, yes, they would agree God is the creator of the universe. But here's what they would say is you were created in his image, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, God is the creator of the universe. Are you ready? So it's all biblical language. And yes, you were created in the image of God, and so both of those things look good. Amen? But here's where they get it twisted. Uh, they believe that God has given you delegated authority so that you have the power to create with your words just like he had the power to create with his. So in the same way that God said, let there be light, he speaks and things come into existence, they believe that us as little gods were created in his image, but they also believe we were created in his kind. And so we are also, just like a human produces a human, a god would produce a what? A god. And so Adam and Eve were little gods right, with the ability to create realities with their words. If you think about it, you're in control, right? You're sovereign over your own life. You're a little God with the power to create your own reality by, by, by naming it, claiming it, confessing it, and commanding it into existence. It even affects the way we pray. We command things to be healed, because that's God's will. We are telling God that based on my words and my faith, things can happen. Now listen, if we are our own God, then we're going to seek to sanctify our own sensual desires, right? Like if we're our own God, then we're going to sanctify our own sensual desires. What do I mean by that? So we're going to overemphasize health. We're going to overemphasize wealth, and we're going to fail to identify humanity's greatest need which is sin. Your greatest poverty is sin. Now look, I get it, and it's true. My sin has attracted so many, because of sin, this world has, has, is experiencing suffering and death. But here's what I want you to see. If I get that my sin has attracted the wrath of a holy and righteous God, then my financial struggles my relational stress and my career ambitions can no longer become my first priority. Did you hear that? If I believe that a holy and righteous and just God, if I believe that there is a holy, righteous, just God, and if I believe that his wrath is coming from me, then the number one priority of my life is not going to be my relational problems, my career problems, my financial situation, or even my health. It's going to be my sin. My sin problem is my first priority. But people don't want to hear that. And do you blame them? Right? They want a motivational message telling us how we can get promoted at work. Right? How we can get ahead in this world and how we can find quick fixes for our earthly troubles. Professor of ethics, David W. Jones, puts it like this. In light of scripture, the prosperity gospel is fundamentally flawed. At bottom, it is a false gospel because of its faulty view of the relationship between God and man. Simply put, if the prosperity gospel is true, grace is obsolete, God is irrelevant, and man is the measure of all things. Secondly, because man is highly exalted, what's the natural result of that? God is, is minimized, right? Because we have the power to control God's sovereignty, right? Scripture teaches us the sovereignty of God, that he is in control, that he is moving history, working it out for his glory and his pleasure. But his sovereign, we are in control. His sovereignty is severely diminished. As a result, this false gospel teaches that God submits to our faith. 
God submits to our faith, right? So if we say the right words, if we give enough money, right? If we had enough faith, God has no choice but what? To respond to what we're doing. It's like this. It's like the law of gravity. It's God has created these laws, and, and the law is, is that I must move when you have enough faith. But in reality, it's just another form of religiosity. It's just another form of justification by your works. God can be manipulated and moved according to what you speak and what you believe and what you say. Now listen to this. Where the true gospel understands faith to be in Jesus, the prosperity gospel teaches faith in a formula by which we can manipulate God into giving us what we want. Now, Here's what I want to say. Some of these things are really overt, and you were like, I would never. But no, they've infiltrated our, our, our community. I hear it in our conversation all the time. And here's something that's sad but common. Uh, this kind of theology, are you ready, makes the healer the hero and blames the seeker for their lack of faith when the healing doesn't occur. And I know people who are disillusioned right now who've left church, who've left God, who've left Christ because people were proclaiming their healing, declaring that it was God's will to be healed, and then they weren't healed. And they were left with a broken heart, and they were fooled by a different gospel, and unfortunately, they've turned their backs from the sufficiency of Jesus. And can I be honest? There might be some of you in here today who you're blaming yourself right now, right? Maybe somebody else blamed you. You might be confused or questioning God because he didn't do something you were convinced he was supposed to do. And you're wrestling with that. Can I just gently suggest this? That disappointment with God that you're experiencing may have more to do with the wrong belief that was passed down to you than it actually has to do with the character of God and who he is. Finally, not only does God submit to our faith, but he... Another way we minimize God is that he becomes a means to an end, but not the end in himself, right? He's no longer the ultimate source of joy. His presence and fellowship with him no longer becomes our primary pursuit. But here's what I want you to know. God does not exist for you. You exist for him. Right? God does not exist to glorify you. You exist to glorify him. I want you to get this. Our joy is found in God's glory, not in the removal of pain, suffering, or poverty. Number three. Number one is man is exalted. And like every good cult, right? Cults do this all the time. They, they raise man up and they lower Christ down. Number one, man is exalted. Number two, God is minimized, and of course, because Jesus Christ is Lord and God, Christ is belittled. There's so much here. There's so much here. I could have gone so, this is really a survey, but I'm trying to be careful with our time. I want to focus on three areas this belittling takes place, okay? They belittle his divinity, they belittle his atonement, and they belittle his sufficiency. Number one, Christ's divinity is belittled. What do I mean by that? 
As overt and crazy as that sounds, this has actually been something that has, this has been a teaching that has crept into some very popular charismatic churches. And especially those of us that would identify, and I say those of us because I do, that would identify ourselves as charismatic or Pentecostal. It's very unfortunate, but our movement has went to bed with this movement. Let me explain. We believe... We believe, Orthodox Christianity, ready? We believe that Christ was what? Fully God and fully? Yeah. We also believe that when Christ incarnate, when he put on flesh, it was an addition and not a subtraction. Are you with me? It was an addition. So, so he was already fully God, but when he stepped into history and put on flesh, he added yeah. uh, humanity. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So... Paul tells us, right, Christ emptied himself in Philippians chapter 2. But here's what I want to share with you. When, Christ when, when Paul tells us that Christ emptied himself, he's not telling us that he lost his divine nature, but that he added to it humanity. And basically, Paul says he emptied himself and he put on the form of a servant, and if you want an in-depth look at this, I don't have time, check out our podcast. You can go back a couple of weeks to our Controversial Christ series, part three, where I break down what it means to be fully God and fully man. Yeah. Now watch. Those who perpetuate this false gospel proclaim a Jesus who walked this earth fully man minus deity. They commonly say, and when you hear this, you're probably like, oh, I listened to a podcast the other day where somebody said this. They commonly say that Jesus demonstrated his power and performed his miracles as a man in right standing with God. And some of us in here, if we, we actually work out our theology, some of you are like, well, isn't that right? Now, they have to teach it this way, right? Why? Why? They'll even tell you they have to teach it this way. Why would they have to teach it this way? Well, I'll tell you why. How else would they be able to elevate themselves? How else could they get away with saying things like, we can do what Jesus did and greater? I mean, if he was not a man like us, if he was not performing these powerful signs and wonders, like we, uh, if he wasn't a man like us, then how could we do the same thing? Are you ready for this? The biggest problem with this teaching is that it emphasizes Christ as example, but not substitute. If Christ is not our substitute, we're robbing him of his glory and we're removing our eternal security. And so, yes, can we say we, we want to be like Christ? Please don't get me wrong. We can say all of those things, right? We are called to be Christ-like. Don't get me wrong with any of that. But first and foremost, the number one purpose of Christ's coming was to die in your place and take the wrath of God in your place. And he did it. Guess what? He died as fully God, fully man. Again, there are some questions to work through there. Go back to our podcast. You'll love it. It covers it really well. Finally, well, not finally. The second thing is atonement. Everyone doing okay with me? The next one is atonement belittles his atonement. You see, the prosperity gospel claims that both physical healing and financial prosperity have been provided for us in the atonement. In fact, Kenneth Copeland says, the basic principle of the Christian life is to know that God put our sin, 
sickness, disease, sorrow, grief, and poverty on Jesus at Calvary. Now this kind of thinking, listen, places our material lack and physical suffering on the same level of our sin. A wrong definition of man's greatest problem robs Christ of his glory and will rob you of your eternal security. Can I tell you right now, your greatest poverty isn't the fact that you don't have a job. Your greatest poverty right now, your greatest sickness right now isn't that maybe you're in here today and the doctor's only given you a certain amount of time to live. Your greatest poverty, your greatest need, and your greatest sickness is the sin that you need to be delivered from, that you need to repent of. Finally, if you belittle his divinity and you belittle Christ's atonement, you belittle his sufficiency. Those who hear the message of this false gospel go home, ready, desiring earthly comforts and earthly treasures rather than Christ alone. When this happens, the treasure gets the glory. Our comfort becomes our ultimate aim, and Christ is no longer enough. Can I ask you this? Is he enough? Is he enough? Maybe you didn't get that raise. Maybe you lost your home. Maybe you're in here in this moment. You didn't get good news from the doctor. But is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? And I, I want to be humble and gracious and recognize that you are going through something that I am not. And we as the church want to come alongside of you and love you and pray for you and believe for healing. Because scripture says to lay hands, to pray for healing. But let me just tell you this. At the end of the day, I want you to know that Christ is sufficient. He is enough. He is enough. Number four, not only is man exalted, not only is God minimized, not only is Christ belittled, but all of this is made possible because scripture is twisted. And to be honest, of all of those three wretched things that I just said, this is actually the most concerning. This is what makes this, this movement and movements like it so dangerous because guess what? If someone can package a lie around a little bit of biblical truth, Many sincere Christians can be easily led astray. There could be some faulty thinking in your belief system, and you won't know it until something happens that didn't go your way, and all of a sudden it shows up. Are you with me? So I, I want to I kind of finish this section by giving you only three. There's so many more, but three texts that are commonly twisted among those that teach this kind of prosperity teaching that are in this movement. And I just want you to pay attention to how they take biblical language and redefine them to justify carnal pursuits. The first uh, set of scriptures, uh, set of scripture I, I entitled wrong riches, wrong wealth, wrong prosperity. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You don't have to go there. It'll be on the screen for time. I'm going to go through these. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was what? Rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. So that you by his might become. Oh, they love this text. They love this text. I'm like, yes, yes, come on, right? They love this text. So look at, yes, Christ has died to make us rich. But no, not in the way that you think. You with me? Christ becoming poor was Christ lowering himself, leaving heaven and leaving the intimate, unique spiritual community and glory he enjoyed with the Father from eternity. This is far greater than material wealth. The riches Christ gave up for us temporarily were heavenly and spiritual riches. 
Now listen, ultimately, these are the same riches that Christ died to win for us. Reconciliation and communion with God, not physical wealth, not physical health and material gain. Number two, wrong healing. They have a wrong definition of prosperity and a wrong definition of healing. Let me go back up to wrong prosperity, wrong wealth. Uh, A lot of these guys will commonly cite the Abrahamic covenant. I don't have this on my notes. This is kind of a side note. But a lot of these guys will uh, will also cite the Abrahamic covenant in which God covenants with Abraham and his descendants to bless them, right? And it's lands and it's seed and it's financial. It's material gain. And so a lot of them, according to Galatians, will say, well, we are now the descendants because Christ Jesus has opened up that blessing for us. And so the same way in which Abraham has the blessing, the, the, the physical blessing, material gain. Now we have in Christ Jesus death, and that's not true. That is not why Christ has come to die. See the atonement. He's come to die. Abraham has supremely blessed us in the seed that would come from him, that would bless the world, and that is Jesus Christ. Again, again, a way to minimize Christ and elevate our carnal desire. Wrong healing. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That's a key word there. He was crushed for our what? Iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes or with his wounds, we are what? Healed. Yes, Christ has healed us. But no, not from physical suffering. The verse is clear. Jesus died for our transgressions and iniquities. In other words, he died for our sins. Healing in this text refers to a healing from sinful guilt secured for us. This healing has been secured for us through Christ's sacrifice. And Peter, the apostle, explains this. Right? They, they never jump to another scripture. Right? They only take one scripture, bring it out of context, and preach it to you over and over again. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 makes this clear. Look at what Peter says. Right? If anyone knew Jesus, it was Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live the righteousness. And here it is. By his wounds you have been healed. What was he referring to? What did he just say? You've been healed of sin. Sin, 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 sin. Are you with me? Now this is important. By dealing with our sin, Christ has ensured that the consequences of our sin, right, including our suffering, suffering is a consequence, are you with me, would also be removed, right? So it's not wrong to believe that Christ's death and his, and his atonement on the cross will also remove the con- not just sin, but what? The consequences of sin. If you go back to Genesis, we see the consequences of sin is death. The consequences of sin is decay. The consequences of sin is the breakdown of our environment, the breakdown of our relationships, selfishness. So yes, suffering will be removed according to Christ and his death, and, and pain will be removed according to what Christ has done, but not here and now are you with me scripture is clear that this glorious completion of his work of redemption will not will not occur until he comes again and he brings this present age to an end and you know they have what i what we call an overrealized eschatology and overrealized in other words they're taking what christ is what's going to happen after the second coming of christ and they're trying to bring it into the here and now where there'll be no more pain and no more death and no more sickness and no more suffering yes those are true but right now here and right now the kingdom is already but not yet and he's first come to deal with our sin are you with me let me this might be helpful for you to think of salvation 
this might be helpful for you to think of salvation. Uh, think of salvation in kind of three different tenses. Ready? First, we are saved from the penalty of sin. You might want to write that down. Right? That's justification. Right? So the minute you put your faith in Christ, two things happen. Number one, God declared you not, not guilty, even though you're as guilty as sin. <laughs> right? So the minute you put your faith in Jesus, God declared you not guilty. And the second thing has happened, and then Christ has given you his righteousness. So now you are clothed and covered in his righteousness. So when God the Father looks down, he doesn't see your mess. He sees his perfect son. Amen? So that's what happens, justification. So we are saved, ready? We are saved from, um, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Next, uh, we're saved from the power of sin, right? So, so not only do we put our faith in Christ, we are, we, are, we are justified, but then we are also being what? Sanctified, amen? And so what's happening is that you're growing in righteousness. So you've been saved, uh, you've put your faith in Christ, he's justified you, he said not guilty, he's closed you in his righteousness, and then as you begin to walk this Christian life out, right? You begin to grow in holiness. You begin to walk further from sin and grow in holiness. Are you with me? So we are first saved from the penalty of sin. Next, we are saved from the power of sin. Finally, we will one day be saved from the presence of sin. All right? And that will, that's called, so it's called justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we will one day be glorified when Christ comes back for his church, in which there will be no pain, no suffering. So we'll not only be saved from, we'll not only be saved from, we'll not only be saved from the penalty of sin uh, or the power of sin, but then also the presence of sin. And I have to speed through this, guys. Uh, number three, wrong blessing. One of the most misused concepts in all of Scripture is the concept of reaping and sowing, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also what? Reap bountifully. Yay, give a lot of money, guys. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Now look, yes, Christ has blessed us. But no, not with the temporary comforts of this world, but with an eternal spiritual blessings, Reaping does. Look, reaping does follow sowing, but their idea of what is being reaped is insulting and, and far too limiting to what is really being given to you and I. Jesus offers us permanent gain. Yeah. Jesus offers us permanent satisfaction, but many are wrongly preaching monetary treasures when priceless gifts are waiting for them in Christ. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus. Do not lay, what, your treasures in heaven. Don't storm up in heaven. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Ready? For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. The difference between the true gospel and these false gospels is that these false gospels talk about the wrong prosperity, the wrong healing, and the wrong blessings. Finally, we're finishing. And thank you for spending a little extra time. This is really important. How can you discern this teaching for yourselves? How can you spot it, right? When you're in the bookstore, because guess what? You go to the Christian bookstore, you go to Barnes and Nobles in the Christian section, and these books are, are right there in front. I wish the Christian bookstore would actually have people who could understand that, just remove those books completely, but it's just not going to happen. So how can you spot it when you're at the bookstore, when you're looking for a church? Maybe at some point you might move, right? Everyone moves there, and you're looking for a church, and you want to find a place that is true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you spot it when you're at a bookstore, when you're looking for a church? How about this? How do you spot it when you're listening to your favorite pastor on YouTube or you're podcasting? 
Or how about this, when you're listening to a worship song? Worship leaders, how do we spot it? It's something we're working through right now with our music. How do you spot it? Here are, here are six things to look for and remember, and then we're going to finish, okay? So if you would just be a little patient, we'll finish it. I don't want to give you these six. Can I say one thing about discernment? Discernment is not a feeling, or it's not this like over-spiritualized, mystical, uh, I discerned something, I discerned it. No, 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 no. Discernment is knowing the word of God and applying it to the circumstance. Some of us like, oh, that, that was really good. It's like, no, you liked the singer, and the singer was like really amazing, and you confused their gift for their anointing. And just because you felt something, you cried, you thought it was an anointing, God was there. But the reality is, is that you don't understand, but that singer is up there worshiping God and living like sin. And then you wonder why you're all upset when the pastor falls and is in adultery. You thought he was the man of God. Well, you were looking at the gift, but you weren't looking at the man. You weren't discerning via biblical scripture discernment and a lot of people will say the problem with wanting to over spiritualize things like well we want to bypass the brain no right well it's just you know anytime a pastor says well you know they always want to bring up doctrine they downplay theology or doctrine i would take a second look at whatever the heck they're saying they try to call it religiosity it's religious to study the scriptures right to look at the hebrew to look at the greek no like the spirit has give us something new no 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 And again, if you disagree with me, we can talk privately or you can find a church that would maybe move in the thing that you would want it to move in, but that's just not what we believe in what we'll do here. And I don't believe that's the call here. Now, I would love to have a good conversation. We won't come hard. We'll have a great dialogue and we'll pray together. But this is what I truly feel and believe, amen? And this is what I truly discern, right? Through the word. With that being said, here are the six. Are you ready? Six things to look for. Number one, no humility. Now, there's two ways you can spot this. Number one is you can follow preachers and sneakers. Just kidding. Total joke. <laughs> preachers and sneakers on, on Instagram. Uh, it's a phenomenon that started several months ago. I think the guy even put it, I don't even know if it's a guy or girl that put it together. It was totally like, didn't know this was going to happen. But dude just started taking pictures of, uh, of different pastors' sneakers and started posting the picture of them wearing their sneakers and the actual retail price of the sneaker. And it's just caused an uproar. It's caused an uproar. So there are pastors like sporting like $1,200 kicks. Some 600, some 500. I want you guys to know this was uh, $99. That's a little expensive as well, but hey, um, it happens. Uh, That's a random side note. I don't have a lot of time. I need to keep going. Two ways you can spot. So number one, look for no humility. Two ways that you could spot this. Number one, be wary of pastors and leaders who live extravagant lifestyles and flaunt their material wealth. Be leery of it. Be leery of pastors who are over-concerned with branding. Be leery with the pastors who are over-concerned with, um, with looking uh, a certain way. Just be weary. I'm not saying it's all bad, all right? Like, I mean, I, I want to look nice, right? I recognize that I want to look nice. And yes, we brand. We're on Facebook and Instagram. So again, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying be weary of the, the overemphasis of this, right? Now listen, material wealth is not a sign of God's favor. Can I say that again? Material wealth is not a sign of God's favor. It's not. It's such an Americanized idea. In fact, America has perpetuated this entire gospel. Take this gospel. In fact, here's the crazy thing is this gospel is taken to the most impoverished places. And, you know, here's another thing about this gospel. You know, the people that are most uh, uh, duped by it is the most impoverished people. They give all their money. (laughs) Material wealth is not a sign of God's favor. Large crowds, celebrity status, wide influence, those are nice things. But they've never been biblical marks of what is true. So number one, be wary of pastors and leaders who live extravagant 
lifestyles, flaunt their material wealth. Number two, listen to the substance of their message. Amen? Is the sermon about you or is it pointing you to Jesus? Are you walking away from it feeling a greater sense of your sin and need for Jesus or are you receiving a motivational speech about how life could only get better? Number two, no humility, no exposition. Expository preaching, right, is preaching uh, uh, that makes the main point of the text the main point of the sermon. And it always finishes by pointing to Christ as its fulfillment. I I, I tell those who are going to preach here at Inspire, Roger and I talk about this often. I said, preach like there's two people in the room. Number one, preach like the author of the text is in the room, right? Right? So if I'm going to preach to the gospel of Mark, I want to preach like Mark is in here. And if Mark is sitting down thinking, eh, that's not why I did that, then I'm off. Then I'm off, right? Number, so preach like Mark's in the room, but also preach like somebody who's never heard the gospel is in the room. Amen? A lot of us think, oh, you know, it's, you know, sponta- spontaneity. The Holy Spirit is in the spontaneity. You should have been spontaneous. You should have went off your script. I'm like, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, Right? Well, why don't you let the Spirit lead you a little bit more, Pastor? Like, the Spirit is leading me every Sunday. He, he's the author of this text. Every, every, every word of Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. He's not going to give me anything new. He wrote this. You can see how passionate I am about that. Here's a good, here's a good rule of thumb. Um, don't just ask if Christ was preached, but ask how Christ was preached. Right? Also, ask yourself, does the preacher stick to you? Uh, does the preacher stick to only their favorite texts, right? Does the majority of their sermons kind of end up focusing on blessing, uh, prosperity, sowing and reaping? Or do they take their time to preach the full counsel of God's word? And I got to go real quick, and I'm going to get here to finish. Um, number three is no call to die, right? No call to die. Jesus says, whoever wants, to, whoever wants to follow me, right, whoever wants to be my disciple, they must first deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He says, as we embark upon discipleship, we, reset, we, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Does the preacher and message avoid Christ-defined discipleship in favor of the good life? Instead of a call to deny yourself, are you being encouraged to chase your dreams and believe in yourself? Number four, no suffering. This is so important. I love what uh, pastor and theologian John Piper said. He said, look out for the absence of a serious doctrine of the biblical necessity and normalcy of suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world." right? The notion that Christ died so we can have an easy life is simply not true. Please take note. I'll send you my notes if you want it. I'm going to go quickly. Suffering is sanctification. Did you know that? Suffering is sanctification. What do I mean by that? James says to us, I count it all joy. I consider it joy when I go through various trials. Wait, what, James? What are you saying? He's saying, I count it all joy, not because of the suffering itself, but because of what the suffering is producing inside of me. Suffering in the hands of Christ becomes a way in which you are conformed into his image more 
than prospering. In fact, if you prospered your whole life, you would never be conformed into the image of Christ the way God has intended. Suffering is sanctification. Number two, suffering is fellowship. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Are you ready for this? And the fellowship of his sufferings. There's an intimacy with Christ in suffering that I rob myself of when I try to run away from it, avoid it, and medicate it. Finally, suffering glorifies Jesus. You might be thinking to yourself, how in the world is that possible? Listen, the beauty of Jesus is made clear to those around us when we demonstrate that we are more satisfied in Christ than in the things we are losing or the pain we are feeling. When we suffer and still worship, we're bringing supreme honor to Jesus. Number five, no blessing. Notice I didn't say N-O. No, as in K-N-O-W, blessing. I just want to say this, and I'm going to move on. If we don't know what spiritual blessing are ours in Christ, we'll default towards defining blessing narrowly as material gain. The biggest problem I see with a lot of Christians, anytime you think of blessing, you automatically think of material gain, right? God bless me, right? And hey, don't get me wrong. He blessed me with a new car. He blessed me with some money. He blessed me with a new job. He blessed me in a relationship. He blessed me with health. That's all we know. And if you continue to not know the spiritual blessings of Christ, you will always default to defining blessings based on a narrow definition of material gain. That's not the blessing that Christ has given you, y'all. And we started this morning with Ephesians chapter 1. Read that. Get to know that. Amen? Those are the spiritual blessings. You ever wonder why it's called spiritual blessing? Well, it's called a spiritual blessing because it's from God and because you can't see it. Are you with me? Are you with me? Yeah. Right? Nowhere on that list were cars, money, home, wealth, or happiness. Right? What was on that list? Do you remember? Here's what the list was. You're chosen. You're predestined. You're loved. You're adopted. You're accepted. You're redeemed. You're enlightened. You're forgiven. You're sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee of a divine inheritance. Notice, no cars, no money, no relationship, no health, and no wealth. Here it is again, just so you can. You're chosen. You're predestined. You're loved. You're adopted, accepted, redeemed, enlightened, forgiven, and sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee of divine inheritance. Finally, and we are finishing here, I promise, no gospel. No gospel. What do I mean by that? No matter how attractive it might sound, and trust me, it sounds attractive. No matter how popular it might get, and trust me, it's popular. The prosperity gospel has zero power to save. This false gospel cannot save your soul, give you new life, grant you peace with God, or reconcile you back to him. It can't bring you into God's family give you hope for eternity, or secure your resurrection to life. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save you forever by changing your status from a hell-bound person waiting for the wrath of God to an eternally justified child of God. That's power. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.